Hello, thanks for listening to Theory Lab. I'm Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society's Research Department. Got a fun episode this time, focused on something I'd never heard of until a few weeks ago called R-loops. My colleague, Dr. Mike Melner, got together a couple of uh, scientists to talk about this. First, Dr. Carlene Simprich. She's professor of chemical and systems biology at Stanford University. She's an ACS research professor. That's our most prestigious research award. She's well known for work showing that when genomic DNA is transcribed into RNA, the RNA and DNA may get tangled with each other, creating unusual RNA-DNA hybrid molecules that are known as R-loops. They cause the DNA to be broken. So recent work in her lab has shown that R-loops may contribute to the damage and mutations that develop in cancer cells, which could make them susceptible to certain treatments. For this conversation, uh, my colleague, Dr. Melner, brought in a former grantee uh, named Dr. Alan Zoller. He's also a member of our Council for Extramural Grants here at ACS. Dr. Zoller is a professor of molecular cell and developmental biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He leads a lab there studying the regulation of pre-mRNA splicing and analysis of small RNA function and biogenesis. That's a mouthful for me. So uh, let's get to their conversation right now. Now, we thought it'd be fun to get together, and uh, I thought it would be kind of interesting uh, to uh, talk about some of Carlene's work, and I thought it'd be kind of fun to have a card-carrying RNA biologist, Alan Zoller, yeah. uh, to join in the conversation and questioning about, because this is sort of at that intersection of, of DNA and RNA where transcription occurs, and, and RNA biologists have a bizarre and unnatural way they view the world, and he might have different ways in which he looks at, at, uh, at what's going on and different ways of, of thinking about it. And so um, I, I think it'd be really fun to talk about these R loops um, that occur. And maybe, Carlene, you can give just some general background about them. But I'm I'm fascinated about them because they have so much potential for developing understanding about some real problematic areas in cancers. Yeah, so the first thing to do is to put everyone on the same page as to what an R loop is, you know, to define it as a as a effectively a three stranded nucleic acid structure composed of, of both DNA and RNA that is thought to at least predominantly form co-transcriptionally when the nascent RNA can rehybridize with the template DNA to create a hybrid and then to displace the other strand as single-stranded DNA. And I think the term is very analogous to what we think of as a, as a D-loop in the, in the context of recombination. But the, the, you know, the R-loop structures have been implicated in a variety of biological processes and are thought to have some, some physiological roles in, in making things happen properly in the cell. Yet at the same time, I think what's been fascinating is that we've come to understand that the deregulation of these also leads to DNA damage in cells. And I think therein lies the, you know, maybe the possible interesting link, at least one of the possible interesting links to driving genome instability in cancer and other ways that one could think about exploiting them in cancer as well. So what, what do you mean by deregulation? 
Right. So, I mean, I, there are a whole host of factors now that have been shown to, first of all, when mutated in some way, knocked down, uh, mutated in a certain cancer setting or some other genetic context, lead to increased levels of, of R loops or, or hybrids, um, which we infer as being R loops. And, and so when you seem to get higher levels of R loops, through these deregulatory, through these different types of deregulation, you get DNA damage. And the types of deregulation that have happened, that, that have been observed, are things like splicing factors, for example, when knocked down, and certain splicing factor mutations that are associated with cancer can lead to increased R loops. There are a number of DNA repair genes, including the very sort of well-known BRCA1 and BRCA2, the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer genes that seem to play a role in suppressing R loops. And work from our lab and, and other labs has shown that various types of deregulation of DNA replication processes also leads to elevated levels of R loops. So there's, there's quite a growing list of factors that seem to keep these structures somehow in a proper form or being turned over in a proper way and keeping their levels low. Um, some of them may directly remove them. Some of them may prevent their formation to, to begin with. So what was the first clue that, 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 that drove you to look at our loops with genomic instability? Because it, it makes a lot of sense now, but it just that yeah. jump it seems fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it took us a while to figure it out. So we, I mean, the first, the reason we got, you know, into this was we did years ago a screen, um, an siRNA screen, to look for factors that led to high levels of DNA damage in cells. We had been working on understanding how the checkpoint kinase ATR was turned on, and you know, at that time, everybody was kind of hitting the cell with a hammer in the sense that they were adding a high level of, of some kind of genotoxic stress or some kind of replication inhibitor and then studying the downstream effects on the ATR pathway. And we started to wonder, like, what are the endogenous types of processes that when disrupted could lead to activation of ATR or just lead to DNA damage in general. And so we set up a screen that was generally screening for things that caused increased levels of DNA damage in cells. And the largest number of hits came from factors involved in RNA processing or splicing. And that was a real surprise to us. We, um, we thought that perhaps it was an indirect effect initially. We worried that there were certain transcripts directly involved in DNA metabolism or DNA repair that were being disrupted by deregulating these RNA processing factors. And so indirectly, that was leading to DNA damage. But we didn't, you know, we, we kept looking basically at the time. And there was a couple of, uh, uh, you know, pieces of information in the literature that were critical. Uh, one lab had been studying, Andreas Aguilera's lab had been studying in yeast and RNA export complex and had shown that mutations of that RNA export complex, the Thotrex complex, led to hyper-recombination. 
and they speculated that it had something to do with our loops. And then there was one example of a splicing factor in mammalian cells that was being studied by uh, Jim Manley, who also observed that when that splicing factor was, was lost, high levels of, of DNA damage. Um, and they also thought that it had to do with our loops. So we started thinking, well, maybe this is actually a very common thing. And uh, many of our hits, maybe some of our hits, some, a few, all, I don't know, um, could be linked to our loops. And so we then kind of did a secondary screen, taking those RNA processing factors and trying to see if any subset of them could be tied to to our loop formation. And in fact, you know, quite a large number of them were. So at that point, we became very excited because it, it just seemed as if this was a much more important mechanism for genome instability than had really been been appreciated at that point. And then one thing that, that also comes out that is, is your study with estrogen levels is that transcription itself in some ways is mutagenic. People talk about DNA replication as having a mutagenic effect that you can make mistakes, but the idea that you could have levels of transcription, you know, just the presence of the RNA could also lead to downstream changes was a pretty striking result because it sort of implies that, that cells that are really engaged in high levels of gene expression maybe aren't made to last a long time. Right, right. No, that, that also was, um, uh, I think, an interesting finding for us. And, and I think there's a, a number of examples of it now, too, that that high levels of RAS, um, for example, can lead to uh, DNA damage through the formation of R loops and um, other indications that you know other types of stress signaling through transcription can can lead to damage through R loop formation. Yeah, you can get to that structure a, a few different ways, um, not just by disrupting RNA processing, but but per perhaps. It is disruption of RNA processing that occurs when you induce high levels of transcription that you're kind of saturating um, the processes that, that deal with that, but we, that's still, I think, sort of an open question. I think I mean, which of the hundreds of factors that, that, do splice, that are involved in, in driving splicing, are, which one can be the living one is, is uh, an area in the field that we just really don't know in that way. So. Yeah, but high levels of transcription will turn off balance the system and, and delay and cause delays in splicing. And one thing that, that kind of struck me in talking about this work with some of my splicing colleagues was, uh, you know, perhaps the ubiquity, you know, sort of the fact that almost all, uh, you know, human genes have introns in them um, may lead back to prevention of our loops. That if you were going to make a really long transcript without any introns, then you just have a lot of RNA that's left that that's that's hanging off there, ready ready to um, hybridize. But because human exons average, I think something like 100 bases, and the introns are 25 times as big, that is, if the splice machinery is working fast to remove those, then you you then then it really does help get rid of R loops. And so we've always wondered why why evolutionarily why the high number of introns, why are the human introns so big? Uh huh. You know, it's so much ATP that's being wasted to make every one of those bases you're just going to, you know, nucleotide in the chain you're just going to get rid of. Um, the R-looping 
as a as a sort of an evolutionary mechanism in, in, in sort of requirement for splicing is something we've kicked around after thinking about your work and it was um I don't know if you have any takes on it, but we found it really yeah. interesting way of putting that together. Yeah, no, I actually I there there is one study on this that um that that does suggest that introns um play a role in suppressing R loop formation. Um, there was a sort of evolutionary analysis that suggested that, that um, there, there's a link between that. And then they went on to actually um, try and insert an intron into a gene prone to R-loop formation um, and show that it suppressed it. And I believe they did the reverse experiment as well. Um, and then one of the other experiments they did was show that, that the the, it wasn't simply the intron that was needed, but it was the ability of uh, the splicing complex or proteins to bind to uh, the DNA in the intron that was also crucial for, for preventing R-loop formation. So that maybe in some way the, the, um, the interaction of proteins with that intron also helps suppress the rehybridization of it um, with with the template DNA, but but also removing that DNA also reduces the size of the uh, potential, you know, overlap b- between the template and the RNA. Now, I think that's I think that's a really interesting idea, and and there's a, the beginnings of of I think evidence to support that idea as well. There seem to be a lot of things going on in the nucleus simultaneously in what looks to be a confined space. And I'm kind of curious what you think. Like uh, Johannes Walters seems to think that there's potential for collisions to occur between the, all of these events going on simultaneously. Um, and do you think that that affects how our loops are handled? Yeah, I think it's funny because I'm I'm teaching a course right now um, called uh, on the biology of chromatin templated processes, and and um, I teach it together with a colleague of mine that studies transcriptional regulation, and we talk a lot about how how, how do you coordinate all of these different events on on chromatin, you know, not only in the nucleus but on chromatin. Um, and and I do think that that there is potential for for collisions to happen. I mean, I think one of the things we know is that that R loops are more prone to causing DNA damage in S phase um, when the replication fork is is active, and it seems like the level of damage goes up dramatically when you when you have R loops prone to you know basically forming in an S phase cell. And in fact, we we showed that if we got rid of the R loops in the estrogen study. Um, and let the cells go into S phase, that the damage was was greatly reduced. So I think that they, you know, they do contribute to that damage that is associated with their formation in, in S phase cells. And we also developed a model uh, kind of system to, inten- you know, intentionally collide a replication fork with a transcription apparatus. And we had the transcription apparatus set up to have an R loop be possible to form or not have an R loop. And that was based on the sequence. Certain sequences are, are prone to um, the formation of R loops. And we did that in, in different orientations because you can imagine that, that these two things could hit each other sort of head on or 
co-directionally, like a car in a front accident or a rear end accident. And we actually saw that that the the collision um, in the head-on orientation between a replication fork and an R loop in, in particular was particularly detrimental to the cell and also led to stabilization um, of that R loop structure. So I, I think these collisions are are sort of biochemical and, and molecular biological evidence suggests that they are a potential problem. And I think subsequent studies now in the genome um, looking at splicing factor mutations, for example, are suggesting that their problem comes from something that's happening in S phase and that it leads to activation of the sensors that normally detect problems at the replication fork. So if the replication fork is the replication fork sensors are, are detecting these, then, then that may be a, as a result of these collisions. And we also did some genomic studies that, that suggest um, this could be happening. So I think it brings up sort of more generally the question is how does the cell minimize these kind of things and are there, are there regulatory processes in place that help them organize replication and transcription to prevent these kinds of threats from uh, becoming reality. Can, can, you, can, can, can that idea work in a way to, um, to benefit ideas for drug discovery, that if you could identify the factors that are going to resolve the R loops, then um, you can imagine that cancer cells that are sort of resistant to, you know, checkpoints in S phase may just have more damage and sort of in increase the damage that the cancer cells undergo, if, whereas normal cells might not try to replicate through the R loops. Right, right. I think, um, I mean, I think there's a few ways you could potentially think about it, but one would be, and, and there's some evidence for this, um, that these, so these head-on collisions that lead to more, that lead to, seem to stabilize R loops seem to activate ATR specifically and not ATM. And that implies that ATR is doing something to help resolve that scenario. Um, and in fact, if you add ATR inhibitors to those cells with these splicing mutations, they're more sensitive to the drug than the wild-type cell is. So there are actually ATR inhibitors in clinical trials at this point. And I think the idea of, of using the ATR inhibitors specifically in cells with splicing mutations that are known to cause R loops and probably replication stress as a result of those R loops is one way to to think about exploiting this. I think also there's, I mean, there's examples. So um, Ewing sarcoma, for example, is associated with high levels of R loops as well. And those cells are more sensitive to ATR inhibitors, but they also seem to have upregulated, um, they may have upregulated pathways that allow them to tolerate the R loops. So I think going after, you know, we could think, people could think about drug targets that are uh, hitting the things that are allowing cells to tolerate these higher levels of R loops as well as a way to treat certain cancers. So from a completely elementary school naive level, part of what seems to complicate things from my point of view is also the physics of what's going on in the nucleus. Now people are talking about this phase separation and that transcription seems to be occurring sort of concentrated within certain components yeah. of the nucleus. Uh, does Do these R loops, I imagine they would be within these concentrated areas, right? 
That's an interesting not. question. No, I, I mean, it's, um, I think they, they do so, show some type of um, focal enrichment in certain areas. I mean, you particularly see them in the nucleolus, um, which may be one of these compartments by itself. But th- there haven't been a lot of, of to, my, to my knowledge, studies to, to really show that that extends beyond the nucleolus. But I think it's an interesting an interesting point, and you know maybe that's part of how we normally keep these things apart from each other. I mean, I think you know there is some genomic data that is starting to suggest that that the way DNA replication origins are organized and utilized is in a way that minimizes their potential to run into a replication fork. But that when you deregulate origin firing, which happens with many, many oncogenes, you may disrupt that organization that separates the process, you know, that helps keep transcription and and replication um, happening at least spatially and temporally at at different periods of time. Um, So it could be interesting to look at that, these phase separation kind of scenarios under some of these different controlled conditions where things are either sort of in the wild type scenario or deregulated as they are in many cancers. Yeah, I think some of your tightly controlled systems are extremely powerful in being able to sort of separate things and allowing you to ask individualized questions. I think that's really, really exciting part of your work. No, I mean, I, I think that's, I mean, it, it's allowed us to really make sort of more definitive statements about what, um, you know, what the problem really is um, and, and to hone in on, on that and then go back to um, the genome and, and try and look on the genome if we see evidence of that as, as well. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's nice to have this system, but it's also nice to be able to use that to go back and look in the genome genomic DNA, whether we're seeing evidence of these, these as well, um, and to go back and forth between the, between the different approaches. What I actually wanted to ask about was uh, the SG2 checkpoint, the HGR-regulated SG2 checkpoint that you, uh, you published about last year. Uh-huh. And I just think, you know, how often do you find a new checkpoint? <laughs> pretty amazing. But also, did you, did you have a hypothesis that there would be a checkpoint there and go into it, or was it a totally unexpected result that you got out of studying ATR? Um, so it, it, was, it was sort of – it's funny because part of it was based on a hypothesis, but the mechanism by which it turned out to act was completely surprising to us. I think for years – people have speculated that there's some way, there must be some way for the cell to know that, that S phase is done um, and that replication is complete. And, you know, we, we thought about that idea when, when I published my first paper as an independent investigator, depleting ATR from um, Xenopus extracts and seeing a slight acceleration of the cell cycle in that extract, even in the absence of, of stress. And we thought about, oh, is that, is that some indication that there is a normal role for, for this process? And, and so for, for a lot of years, we've sort of wondered about that, but had a hard time, you know, ever showing that it was different from the DNA damage, uh, from, from, the, from the scenario where the cell was actually sensing stress. And it wasn't until Josh uh, saw that there was um, an effect of ATR that was transcription dependent, which was what we didn't expect, that 
we started to dig into the mechanism and realize that it, it was happening in a way we completely, you know, hadn't really anticipated. We thought this was going to be some kind of post-translational uh, effect um, that was kind of directly related to turning on the checkpoint. And there are certainly analogies to what happens in that stress condition, but there's a very different downstream target that we had never even considered in this scenario. And, you know, that target and pathway had actually been studied as well by others. So we were able to, you know, build on their work connecting this ability to monitor S phase by ATR with the ability to regulate the cell cycle through the FOXM1 pathway. So we always thought there was something there, but it didn't work the way we thought it did at all. So, and it, 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 what's interesting is in the Xenopus, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Xenopus oocyte system, um, there, there, in those early cleavages, there is no, um, there is no G2 phase. So you, so you just need to complete DNA replication and then head toward cleavage, or, or is that really different than, um, I guess, normal cell growth where you do have time after G2 to um, to make decisions. I mean, sorry, time after S phase in G2 to make decisions about mitosis where in the Xenopus you're going right, right into the cycle. Right, right. And, and you ha that's right. And, and the way people sort of, I mean, if you think about it, what we've been doing all along to start to study checkpoints is add more DNA to the oocyte extract so that we could create, I think, the signal that slows it down. Um, so hey, the, oh, that, that makes sense. That was it. Was you know that it was uh, work a number of, of of years ago that suggested that you had to have a certain amount of DNA in there. You know, basically the point at which you get to the MBT, you start to see a, a critical level of of signal that allows checkpoints to start to come into play. Well, guys, I think we're about running running out of time here. I I want to thank you guys for for. Um, for helping us out with this. This has been a lot of fun. It uh, it raises all kinds of exciting ideas. I didn't even get get to talk about my pet peeve, which is, you know, steroid hormones and why they're causing these R loops and how that could fit into why they're a risk factor in postmenopausal women like steroid hormone replacement. But um but thank you so much for for helping us out with this. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's been fun. Maybe we can talk about that some other time. And, and thanks to the ACS, too, actually, for their support. Yeah, and Alan, thanks so much for joining in, even a card-carrying oh. RNA biologist. Thank you so much. This was fun. <laughs>